Excellent. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Boya, for that. Great hymns that we could sing together there. Now, the subject is uh, how can we know that there is a God? Recent surveys apparently show that in Britain, this country that we live in, only 27% of people say that they believe in a God. And 1 in 16 uh, speak of an existence of a higher power, just a higher spiritual power. Um, But the question what we're going to answer today, hopefully answer or seek to give some evidence for, how can we know that there is a God? And when I speak about that today, I'm not speaking about a higher power or I'm not speaking about gods, but I'm speaking really, how can we know that there is a God who is a creator, who is eternal, who is all-powerful, all-wise, relational, but invisible? Now, some people say, uh, I asked someone this week, how do you know there's a God? And they say, well, I just know. Okay, good for them, good for them. But that's not convincing for everyone, of course, as you might anticipate. And so why, and it probably is not going to be a great basis of argumentation or discussion if you speak to friends and neighbours, just say, well, I just know. So what I'm going to do today, what I'm going to hopefully do is look at three areas of evidence, three areas of evidence for the existence of God, or a God. Now there's more areas I'm going to suggest that we could explore, and even in the three areas that we do explore, we could say there is more evidence within them. So if you leave this place feeling a bit short-changed, I haven't dealt with everything and every objection, um, well I do apologise, but um, if I'm here till three o'clock speaking, some people will, well no one will be here left, I guess it'll just be just me. So we're not going to take that long, okay, but the first thing I want to bring to you today is is this creation creation and got a verse on the screen there I will read it to you it says this in Romans chapter 1 for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes that's speaking about God his invisible attributes both his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so they are without excuse and so Paul is writing to people there in Rome saying that you can see that there is a God understand that through what has been made now obviously he's uh, got this presupposition that there is a creation that has been made by God so what we're going to examine is is there evidence for that is there actual evidence that there is in this universe that we live in evidence that there is a God you know we live in a universe which is absolutely massive we could use the phrase mind-blowing if you like. Uh, I was out for a walk uh, on Friday night. I was going to say it's a romantic walk with my wife, but maybe every walk with your wife is romantic. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, I was out for a romantic walk, and we were walking down Kingsgate. That's what we do on a romantic walk, you see. And I looked, and there was the moon. And I uh, said to my wife, I said, you know, if we could travel at the speed of light, obviously we cannot, Speed of light, 186,000 miles per second. So that's really quick, obviously. We would get to the moon in two seconds. Actually, probably 2.2, but we'll round it down, okay? Two seconds, wow. One, two, we'd be there. 
Okay. Think how long it takes for in the rockets to get there. But next to it, along, and I had, to, I said to my wife, I said, "Is that a star?" Because I didn't know that's a plane or a star. I didn't have my contacts in. You see, she said, "Yes, that's a star." And I said, "At a minimum, at a minimum, at the same speed as we'd get to that moon in two seconds, it would take us over four years to get to that star." over four years, the nearest star, not including the sun, I know the sun's a star, but that one in the sky next to the moon wasn't a star. That's the nearest one. We live in a huge universe. It is in fact mind-blowing. Now it's widely accepted among scientists these days, you know, um, not those who are uh, believers, that the universe had a beginning in the distant past. Now we could argue when that was, but let's just, for the sake of today, just say the distant past. Okay, there is a beginning to this universe. People accept that. What is also accepted as a common fact of logic that everything that begins to exist must have a cause. It must have a cause to begin to exist. So it goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause of its existence. Okay? And the universe, widely acknowledged, has a beginning. It began to exist. Therefore, it has a cause for is existence. There was never a time then, by logic, that there was an absolute nothing. There was nothing at all. Because you can't get something out of nothing. That defies common sense to all of us, from the youngest hair to the oldest. I think when we look at this world, we can see that there is design. If I put that up now, if I was to ask, if this was at school, I'd say, where is this, you see? But no one's going to shout out at me, so I'll just tell you. It's in Mount Rushmore in America, you know that. Uh, maybe you don't know that, but there you go. That's Mount Rushmore in America. And there we see, in that mount, are four figures of the presidents of the United States. The first four, I think it was, the first four presidents of the United States. I might be wrong on first four, I think I'm correct, but that doesn't matter for this now, if I said to you, do you think someone came along and designed that, or sort of made that, I think you'd all say yes. If I said to you, no, I don't think that's what happened, I think what happened is the wind over many, many years blew at different speeds, picking up different particles of sand around, and gradually what we have sculpted it into the mountain there is these faces of the four American presidents. Now some of you are smiling, you see, because you see, well that's absolute nonsense, of course not. It bears the hallmarks that there is a sculptor, an intelligent designer, who has put that into them, someone who is highly skilled. You look at my watch, um, you know, is, is there, there, did that come by accident or design? We all see when we look at things, that comes by design. Some of you like going to art galleries, I'm not amongst that group of people, but some of you do. And you look at a picture, and one of the things you say, who painted that? Who painted that picture? 
And often, though I'm not an expert, far from it, on pictures, there's the signature of the artist on there. I think that's still the case, I'm not too sure. But anyway, we get the idea, there's a signature. I submit to you today that on, we look at this universe, we'll just consider some things about it, there is the signature there, bearing of an almighty, all-powerful, wise, designer God. You know, we look at this world today, and we can see laws in action. There's a sunrise, there's a sunset. I can go onto my app, you can go onto your app as well, and you will see for the next months and months and months what time, well we call it sunrise, obviously as we know it's not technically a sunrise, it's the earth revolving around the sun, so it appears to rise, but we call it that and that's fine. There's order, we don't have to sort of think, oh I don't know when it's going to be, because there's design and there's order, even in the common things that we often take for granted. I go running down the beach often, and there's a surf school there, and on, I've never done anything like that, some of you have, but on the board it'll have their high tide, low tide. They'll give you the exact times. How can they do that? How can they do that? Because there's laws given by a lawgiver, and they are in order. There is great design there. Now, laws don't make themselves. Laws do not make themselves. Well, I'll take you just a few things to think about on this earth that we live on. This earth that we live on is just the right distance from the sun to maintain life that we have. It's in a perfect range so that life can exist on this earth. Now some people call that the Goldilocks zone. And uh, some of you are smiling, you're a bit older of course, and some are younger, so I have no idea what Goldilocks is. Well, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, she liked her porridge neither too hot nor too cold, you see. And some of you have now clicked on what the Goldilocks zone is. Just right. And the earth is placed at just the right distance from the sun, neither too hot nor too cold. What do we need for life? On this earth we need, li well, we need liquid water. That's essential for life. And where we are positioned is perfectly that liquid water can be here in abundance. Too closer to the sun, evaporates, goes away. Too further away, it's in a solid state of ice. So we have an earth which is perfectly positioned. We also have an earth which rotates pretty much in a circular orbit. Not elliptical, okay? We know what an, an ellipse is and we know what a circle is. If the Earth was in anything remotely elliptical, then we'd have big extremes of temperature. We don't have that in that case. We have pretty much circular Earth at the right distance around the Sun, always the same as that's telling us. We know what a day is, we know what a month is with the moon, lunar month, and we know a year going around there. Perfect order, perfectly positioned, perfectly distance for that. Interesting, so the Earth's distance speaks of a designer. The fact that it spins speaks also of a designer. Uh, I was tempted to bring in this plastic ball I've got, which is like a globe. I sometimes do this with the children in school, but I thought, oh, no one's going to participate, so I'll leave it at home. But you hold the ball up, uh, and it's got the earth on it, and you say, how long to rotate? 
and everyone says a day, and they're right, 24 hours. I know there's a little few seconds either side, but for the purposes of this, we are on an Earth that rotates 24 hours, one rotation, all the time, always has been, okay. And it brings us sunrise, and it brings us sunset. Now what's interesting as well, with regard to that, if the Earth was tidally locked to the sun, you think, what's that about? Well, let me tell you, like the moon is to the Earth, life could not exist. We only ever see one side of the moon. It's called the far side of the moon, which we never see from Earth. We never see. It's been discovered, you know, not looked at in space. So we only ever see one side of the moon. You can imagine, if the Earth was like that in relation to the sun, one part lives in permanent sunshine. Now you might think that's great, but that's not actually great for life. And it's certainly not great for the other side in permanent darkness, nothing grows. So we have an Earth that rotates and gives us a day and then means there is not extreme hot and extreme frozenness. We also have a moon, that same one I looked at the other night as we went out for our little walk. And um, we look at that, rotates around the Earth on a, a lunar month, 29 and a half days. And as you know, as I spoke about that surf school, is high tide and there's low tide. And they are, the main reason, the main reason is because of the position of the moon. Two high tides, two low tides in every 25 hour cycle, okay? So that's why they're not the same all the time. And the gravitational pull, which is just the right gravitational pull on there, makes that the oceans and the estuaries and the rivers don't stagnate. Um, I think this was applicable. I tried once, as some of you will remember, years ago, uh, to keep fish. They all died time after time, so I gave up on that hobby. My friends who were successful, they kept marine fish, and one of the things is you had to keep pumping oxygen around to you know, keep the water, stop it stagnating. That's what the moon does for the oceans in this world, the constant pulling back and forth of the water. That's the main reason of tides that we have. If it was much smaller, it wouldn't be effective. If it was much bigger, then it would be, there would be tidal waves all the time. So the moon rotates and is exactly itself in the right position on this earth to stop the ocean stagnating. Too small, not effective, too big, we're all wiped out with regard to that. So there is the tides. What about the air we breathe? Now we all take that for granted, don't we? In and out all the time. If we're doing a bit of exercise, we're doing a bit more in and a bit more out. And sometimes we struggle for breath. What's this atmosphere we've got? We've got an atmosphere. 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and it's just a thin sheath around this earth, okay? A thin sheath, 60 miles, that sounds quite a bit. But if you pick up an apple, pick up an apple, and the skin on the apple is very thin compared to the, the actual apple you buy, isn't it? Well, if you bring, big that up into the, what our earth is like, take the radius, center point to the extremity, of our earth 
and then the atmosphere is in scale like a skin is to an apple. It is very thin. But it is just so there, and we have oxygen within that, that is vital for us. It is like nowhere else that has been discovered. The vast part of this universe doesn't have that in those quantities. It's almost if, isn't it? Like life, the earth has been designed so that life can be sustained. And that's what God says in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. He made it to be inhabited. So the atmosphere, the moon, the spinning, the distance of the earth. One more thing, one more thing. Gravity. Now there's something else we all take for granted, yeah? If I was to jump up, what would happen? I'd come down, yeah? Why is that? Thank you. <laughs> Gravity. Gravity. I got a bit brave there. I thought someone might take part. Gravity. We all just, it's just yeah, we take that for, that's why we're not all floating around and floating off. You know, gravity is there. Now this is amazing. There's what we call, on, in this earth, fine tuning. Something just really finely tuned. To those who are older, I could demonstrate, sort of illustrate it like this. You might remember you used to have a radio in your house. And, and you got, oh, yeah. <laughs> and you dialed it like that. And it just had to be so, so you'd pick up the radio station. You, you remember that. I remember that. You used to pick up these pirate radio stations. And just, it, you just have to turn the knob and then it would line up. That's what we mean. It had to be finely tuned. Either way, you couldn't hear the radio. That's what finely tuned is about. Gravity is really finely tuned. Okay, gravity is really finely tuned. Scientific fact is accepted that if the strength of gravity was just one part in 10 to the power of 60 different, life on Earth could not exist. So you get a 10, those who are at school or been to school, that's all of us, and can remember, that's not all of us by the way, 10 to the power of 60, if it changed by that little part, 1 in 10 to the power of 60, life would not be sustainable. Let me illustrate what that means. Okay, Imagine you had a tape measure. And that tape measure is marked off in millimetres. Okay, And that tape measure reaches from here to the moon. And back. And back. And back. It goes there 24 times, it comes back 24 times. That tape measure is marked off in millimetres. Select a slot anywhere on that point, on that tape measure. Just put it there. And say that's the strength of gravity. If it moves by one millimetre, or more than one millimetre, pardon me, imagine the size of that tape measure, how huge that is. This is how finely tuned gravity is and many things in this world. If it moves more than one millimetre, life on Earth is not sustainable like we have it now. This world is finely tuned. I would say it puts to a designer on that. And so I submit today that there is so much evidence that points to a world designed purposefully, designed with irreducible complexity 
and designed with, with such fine tuning that it bears the signature of someone who is all wise and all powerful. And that is truly the God who is revealed in Scripture. You know, I, I spoke about this once to a friend. Well, I spoke about it a number of times. And he said to me, he said, well, yeah, I, I get all that. But what if there was an infinite number of universes? An infinite number of universes. Uh, and I said, well, where's any evidence whatsoever for that? And also that begins, so how did they come into beginning? That doesn't make logical sense at all. But what there is, the universe we live in, bears the signature and hallmarks of a God who is a creator. Intricate design. But the second bit of evidence I want to bring before you is this. Okay, And God's word says this. So we thought about creation. Now how about conscience? Let me read to you. For when Gentiles, Paul writes, who do not have the law, naturally do the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So, let me summarise. Paul was writing to people, and they knew that the Jewish people were given the word of God. But So the question is, well, what about those who didn't receive the Bible, who don't have the Bible, as we might call it? And he's saying there that there is a law written in the hearts of everyone. Now, if there's a, if there's a law written, there must be an author. Okay, there must be an author, a law written in the hearts. We can call it the conscience, we can call it morality, if you like. Is that true? And if it is true, what does that point towards? A conscience that everyone has, an absolute standard that all have of morality. And there's an argument that works like this, and I'm going to seek to illustrate and explain it. If God does not exist, then what we call objective moral values do not exist. Okay, So if God does not exist, then everything is just subjective. You do what you feel like, they do what they feel like, and who's to say what's right or wrong? It's all just subjective to the person. But if God doesn't exist, then objective ones, there is a standard, they don't exist either. However... I think I'm going to, you might know, you might believe they do, and I'm going to hopefully show a bit more evidence they do. They do exist. They do exist. Therefore, God exists. Now, this is called the moral argument for the existence of God, if you like a little title on that. To deny God, you must give up the idea that, that anything is actually right or wrong in a real sense. And it's seen throughout history, throughout cultures, that all different cultures have accepted basic ideas of right and wrong, good and evil. How that plays out has been very different. How that plays out in their lives has been very different. But throughout cultures, stealing, murder have been condemned. Telling the truth, respecting parents is honoured. 
Even amongst thieves and robbers, scammers, who might lie, they expect that each of them would tell the truth to each other. They have a standard. They, they think they should tell the truth to each other, even if they're going to tell lies around to everyone else. It's written there in their hearts. And you all know, you all know that objective morals exist. Because when you speak to someone, and you speak to them, you might say, well, that's wrong. And you might say, well, lying's wrong. Murder, wrong. How would you like to be treated like that? You're appealing to an absolute standard that you both share. Christian, non-Christian alike, there is a standard that when we speak with each other, we appeal to. We appeal to. Don't lie to me. You don't have to be a Christian to hear that said. You promised you don't have to be a Christian to hear someone say that. Because that is the appeal to a standard of behaviour. And as the Bible says, it's a law written in our hearts. It's a law that is written there, and the author is the God who put it there, whose standards and character are shown in the law that he has written. He is a God of truth. And that's what was written there. Let me do the reverse. If there was no objective standard to right or wrong, that we couldn't say, or you couldn't say, or no one could say to one group of people what you're doing is wrong, because we don't like that. Just because we think it's wrong. I remember speaking to someone when I used to be at work that, because they argued to me on that. When I say argue, I mean argue in the nice sense, right? Disgust we could use. So they said, you know, it's, it's wrong for us to say to another group of people what they do is wrong, or did was wrong. He said just, and he was very much into evolution, you know, survival of the fittest. So I said, um, so do you think the Holocaust was wrong? And he looked, and of course the answer is pretty obvious, isn't it? Well, I said, who, who are you to say that the Nazis in Germany were wrong? They thought that was what they should do. You're saying it's wrong, but if there's no absolute standards of right or wrong, it's just subjective... Why not? And also, isn't that the survival of the fittest playing out? Just k kill the people who are weak. And he said, I suppose you're right. Because no one thinks what happened there was right, do they? No one thinks that whatsoever. That was right. We recognise, although we try and suppress it, that there is a conscience that we all have. Now Richard Dawkins, a well-known atheist and antagonist against Christianity, conceded this. He said it is pretty hard to defend absolute morals on grounds other than religious ones. So he himself said, if there are absolute morals shared across people, then they must come from someone who is over us, an ultimate law giver. Even the New Scientist magazine, not a Christian magazine by any stretch of the imagination whatsoever, said this, morality appears to be hardwired into our brains. It seems we are born 
with a sense of right and wrong. Well, yes, they wrote that in 2007. I don't hope they didn't spend too much money on their research, because if they'd have read what Paul wrote, that is exactly what he said 2,000 years before that. That is exactly what he said 2,000 years before that. There is a work of the law written in our hearts with regard to that. So the conscience or morality is given to us by God to reflect him. We are created in his image. That image is deformed. That image is deformed. But however, there is something still there. We reflect something of a God who loves, who loves truth, who is just and has mercy. Creation shows the existence of God. The very conscience that we have shows there is a law giver who's written it there on the hearts of all. He has written that there. But the third one I want to take us to today is Christ. <coughs> Christ. This is the, the, last, uh, the last one I want to bring before you. The third piece of evidence... There's enough evidence in creation to show that there is a God, so without excuse. There is evidence that we have a conscience to show that there is a God. But in Jesus Christ, we truly then have a deepening of what God is like, a greater understanding of what God is like. Through him... We can know there is a God, and we can know more about God. We can. You've probably heard the story of the little schoolboy, and his teacher on a Monday morning said to the whole class, uh, I want you to draw a picture. I want you to draw a picture of someone you met over the weekend, you see, and all the children are sort of drawing these pictures as best they can. You know, if they were like me, they'd be very poor pictures. If they were like some of you, they'd be very good pictures. And the teacher's going round, and who's that? What's mummy? Yeah, and who's that? What's my granddad? Yeah, and comes to little Johnny. And uh, Johnny, who, who's that? Oh, that's God. Well, Johnny, no one's seen God. Look at the picture, and Johnny says, Well, they have now. <laughs> but I suppose it makes it illustrates the point. We make up in our heads a picture of what God is like. But Jesus Christ reveals truly what God is is like many people have false ideas of what God is like the words of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, let me read them to you Philip said to him Lord show us the father and it is enough for us Jesus said to him have I been with you so long and you still don't know me Philip now listen to this whoever has seen me has seen the father whoever has seen me has seen the father that if I might speak in this way, is a bold claim to make. If you are looking at me and examining me, Jesus says, you are seeing God. Okay. Now some people would say that he never claimed to be God. You will meet groups of people who say that. But even his enemies understood he claimed to be God. They didn't accept it, but they understood he claimed it. John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to the religious leaders, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now you think, what's that? 
Well, I am is the name of God given to Moses. When Moses said to God, who shall I say sent me? He says, say I am. It's the name of God. And Jesus used that name for himself. Took it upon himself and says, I am. And they understood that. Because they picked up stones to stone him for the crime of blasphemy. Making himself equal with God. So don't, you know, ever... If someone comes to you and says, Jesus didn't claim to be God, there's irrefutable evidence that he did. There is irrefutable evidence that he did. Now, of course, many people can claim to be God. Yeah? It doesn't mean they are. So is there evidence? Well, there is. Here we have eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. Now, some people sometimes have said to me, you know, I, I believe the things, you know, uh, some of the things, but th- these miracles, I, I don't believe. And so my thing is, well, I think, well, I'm, I'm quite simple. You know, many people would say amen to that. Uh, but I said, well, if God was upon this earth, and you wanted evidence, you're not going to just see the things, the type of things that you and I can do. You're going to want to see evidence of someone who can, almost as it were, go above the laws of nature. The lawgiver can suspend those laws or, or work things that are what we might call miraculous. That's what we'd expect. And that's what you have. You know, you turn to Mark chapter 5, just for instance. So examine the Gospels. Examine the eyewitness accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Just examine them. Four independent accounts about the words and the work of Jesus Christ. Not done in a secret place, in a corner, in a dark place. And people saying we heard of such things, but people said we saw such things. You know, Mark chapter 5, as I said... He calms the storm. He says to the wind and the waves, Stop, be still. Now the people in the boat were fearful. And once he does that and it goes like, they're fearful again. Now they're thinking, who is this? Who can do such things as this? Who is this person? He goes over to the other side of the lake. A demonic possessed man. And Jesus says to the demons, come out of him. And they have to obey. And he's then sitting in his right mind. That's the transforming power of Jesus Christ. He can bring transformation to a person. He then goes and across, back across, a woman touches him. She's been 12 years ill. She spent all her money on doctors. Nothing against doctors, okay? But she has spent all her money. She touches. And what happens? She is made well. And then finally, the fourth one in that 24-hour period, he goes into a house of Jairus. There's a 12-year-old girl has died. And there before Peter, James and John, the mother's, uh, the girl's father called Jairus, the mother, and Jesus there, eyewitnesses, he raises her back to life. And the eyewitnesses write about that. Now we could go on for ages and ages. Speaking about the, the, the evidence that Jesus Christ is God. He, he did 
things that no one else could do, no man could do, but he did things that God could do. It's irrefutable. I would suggest to you, with just a reading of the Gospels and a consideration who wrote it and what they were prepared to do as a result of what they had seen, that that is reliable, totally reliable and trustworthy evidence. Not only did he do miracles, he displayed a holiness of life. A holiness of life. So yes, he shows God's power. But when we see Jesus Christ as seen on scripture, we see someone who shows holiness to show us what God is like. Sinless perfection. He could say this at one time to a group of religious leaders, the same people he's speaking to when he said, I am. Which of you convicts me of sin? Which of you can point out sin? Now if I was to say that to you now, you could all raise your hands and point something out about me, couldn't you? Not a problem. Not a problem. But to those who had observed him, yes, they hated him. But there was none could do that. Which of you convicts me of sin? There was no one. But consider his words then. The one who truly showed us what God is like. And he said this. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ demonstrates that God is relational. He is relational. And he desires a relationship with those who are stamped with his image. Sin makes that impossible naturally for us. And so Jesus Christ comes and demonstrates that God is a God of love. The greatest demonstration to show that God is love is that he comes and gives his life as a ransom, as a payment for the issue of sin. In place of many, it says, as a ransom for many, in the place of many. You know, that natural law I spoke about, the conscience that we have, does testify against us, does accuse us, that we have sinned against the lawgiver, God himself, and that we are accountable to him. Sin separates. It must be punished. We understand that. Wrongdoing must be punished. You know, I was in the schools this week, if I might give another illustration from there, and I said to the, the children, you don't have to shout out, but I said, should wrongdoing be punished? And half said yes. I said, right, I'll give you a little story. You go home tonight. And you, when you go home, your mum and dad tell you, Do you know, when we're all been out today, burglars have come in the house, they've ransacked the house, they've taken everything in your bedroom that you hold precious and have been gifted, and it's gone, everything's gone. Ah, should... What should happen? I said, well, the police are going to get involved. But what happens? They, they find the person who's done that, you see. They find them. And then they come to you and say, do you know what? We're going to let them off. Well, you can imagine the faces on these children as I say that story. Ah, <gasps> what do you think? Ah, oh, it's not fair, it's not fair. No, because you believe wrongdoing should be punished. And so God must punish sin, that's just. But his mercy 
And his love has been shown in that Jesus Christ comes into the world, takes the punishment for our sins, so that everyone who trusts in him will never be punished. How can we know that there is a God? Well, you might have been convinced anyway, but maybe these answers will help you when you speak to people. Creation displays it. Our conscience recognises it. And Christ really demonstrates that there truly is a God who loves us and desires us. Shall we pray? Father, we just thank you for your word. And Father, we thank you that we have a faith. Many of us have a faith that is not based on speculation or fantasy or fairy stories. But a faith that is based because we have evidence that there truly is an all-powerful, almighty and a wise God. But a God who loves us and cares for us and desires us. Father, we think of your word says you do not desire the death, the separation from you of anyone. And that you are patient, desiring that all would come to you through Jesus Christ, the one who gave his life as a ransom for many. Father, we thank you for the message of your word. We thank you for your work in this world and in our lives. We give thanks. We come in Jesus' name. Amen.